Have you ever had the experience of somebody calling on you for something? Uh, you know, in school, a teacher calling on you, or in a, maybe in a, in a meeting at work, the boss calls on you or something, like just completely out of the blue, somebody points to you and says, can you, can you explain that, please? And there's that brief second of, I have no idea what to say right now. And then you just come out with this answer that absolutely stuns everybody and you like, you surprise yourself, right? Because your answer is so amazing. Um, I, I had this experience once, I was about 15 years ago, I was working on my master's and I was living here in St. Catharines and, and, uh, and commuting to Boston for school. And it was the first time I was ever crossing the border to take classes over in Boston. And, um, and I wanted to be sure that I had all my paperwork together, right? I wanted to do this well. I had a flight to catch. And so uh, I called ahead and I said, listen, this is my situation. I'm going over to Boston. I'm going to be, spend three weeks down in Boston. I'm going to be taking two classes uh, as an enrolled student in school. Um, what visa do I need to cross the border? And they, and they said, well, if you're only going for three weeks, you're non-residential, your B-1 visa is sufficient. That's the one that comes with your passport, your citizenship. Just show them your passport and you should be good to go. And so I was really excited. Okay, I'm, I got it all ready to go, but I, I wanted to be conscientious, right? So I gathered all my school paperwork, all the stuff the school had sent me, the registration forms, the course schedule, the syllabus, like all the stuff I had with me. And I drive to the border and I pull up to the booth and the guy asked me the question, you know, where are you, citizenship, Canadian? I was with my brother, he's a Canadian. And, and he says, so where are you going? He said, we're going to the airport. Where are you flying? Going to Boston. He says, why are you going to Boston? And I said, well, I'm a student in Boston, uh, and I'm going down for three weeks to take a class. And he says, oh, he says, I, uh, I see. And I said, well, I have my paperwork right here. And I handed him over the, all the paperwork that I had from school. And he's, and he's scanning it for a second, and he looks up at me, and he says, okay, so can I just see your J-1 visa? And I said, well, sir, I don't have a J-1 visa uh, because I said, I actually called to verify. I talked to your colleagues here at the border, and they assured me that in order to do what I was doing, to cross the border, take this course for three weeks, um, I only needed a B-1 visa. That would be sufficient. And he says, well, that's an interesting story, except your paperwork from the school, see right here, where it says international student, it says J-1 visa. So I'd like to see your J-1 visa, please. And I said, well, I don't have a J-1 visa. I have a B-1 visa, which is sufficient for the trip, according to your colleagues. He said, then you're going to need to explain to me why the school you're attending sent you a piece of paper that says they expect you to have a J-1 visa. And that was it. We stared at each other for about five seconds. And I said, sir, I said, I, this, is, this, is, this is what happens. The school accepts international students, right? Of course they do, and they accept international students from Canada, people like me, and international students who are traveling to the school to take courses from Canada, if they're gonna be residential students, they require a J-1 visa, of course. But international students like me who are just crossing the border to go down for three weeks in a non-residential way to take a course don't require a J-1 visa. They require a B-1 visa. The reason the paperwork says that I need a J-1 visa is because a school in Boston, which isn't a border town at all, has absolutely no reason to expect an international commuter student from Canada. They don't have a category for someone like me who's just driving down, taking a course, and then going back home. They just The computer assumes that every international student that's coming down is going to be living in Boston, because why wouldn't they? And they need a J-1 visa to be a residential student at the school. That's why it's, it's an automatic output J-1 visa. That's what you need. He looks at me for a second. And he says, that is a perfectly reasonable explanation. Here's your paperwork. 
have a great flight. We drive away. My brother looks at me and he says, is any of that true? I said, I have absolutely no idea. I said, no idea. But I, it was just this most amazing feeling to have this answer for an authority, right? Especially with the big power trip and whatever. And I had an answer and it shut him down and he let me go. And I imagine that that is exactly how Peter feels in the story that we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 13 if you have a Bible or a Bible app on a, on a device. In Matthew 16, 13, it says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They, they, Jesus and his disciples are traveling outside of Israel still. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. They're about 25, 30 miles north of the northern boundary of Galilee where Jesus lives. And, uh, and they're in this town called Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus kind of pulls his disciples. He says, listen, you guys are out there talking to people. You're you're networking with folks and you're listening. You got ear to the ground. And so what are people saying about who I am? And the disciples say, well, the answers are kind of all over the place. You know, some people say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. In fact, we talked about uh, Herod Antipas. One of the local rulers believed that about Jesus. We talked about that in the first week. You can go back and listen to that if you want for all about that explanation. They said other people think you're Elijah. Elijah was a prophet that lived 800 years before Jesus as a spokesperson of God. And Elijah's ministry was to preach a message of salvation and judgment, to perform healings and miracles, and to call people back into a relationship with God. And in the first century, people believed that Elijah was going to re-emerge in Israel to call people to do what he did back then, to call people back to God in a brand new way as a precursor to God doing something amazing in their midst. And you can imagine, like Elijah's ministry, preaching and healing and miracles and calling people back to God, that looked a lot like Jesus' ministry. And there were a lot of people who said, this is it, this is the prophecy come true, that Elijah has come back to Israel. Um, they said other people say you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was also a prophet that lived 600 years before Jesus. And um, there were other sets of Jewish writings that said that in the, at the end of days, that Jeremiah and another prophet named Isaiah, the two of them were going to come back to Israel because they were two prophets who lived hundreds of years before Jesus and nobody listened to them when they were alive. So they were going to come back in the latter days. They were going to come back to Israel and they were going to do their ministry all over again. And this time people were going to listen and people would stream back to God and God would do this amazing thing in their midst. And, and basically, uh, the disciples say, it's all positive. Everybody's saying good things. Everybody thinks that God is at work in your ministry and that you are on the, on the leading edge, the cutting edge of God doing some, of some amazing movement of God in our midst. But the opinions are kind of all over the map. Kind of like if you were to just walk down the street and ask people, hey, what do you think about Jesus? People would say, oh, he's a, he was a good man and he met an unfortunate end because he was misunderstood. Or they'll say, well, he was a, a great moral philosopher, kind of like a Socrates uh, from Israel or or they'll say, you know, he was a bringer of enlightenment, like Buddha. Or they'll say he was a revolutionary, like, like Martin Luther King, or like Gandhi. Or they'll say um, that he was a, a spiritual master that raised the level of human consciousness, right? Deepak Chopra wrote a, a whole book about this. But who is Jesus? Well, the answers are kind of 
all over the map. And then Jesus, it says in, in verse 15, he turns to his disciples and he says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, looks him straight in the eye and says, I know exactly who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the first time in the entire gospel that any of Jesus' disciples has recognized him exactly for who he is. Now, as readers of Matthew, we've known that this is who Jesus is. The very first verse in the book of Matthew says that Jesus is the Messiah. We, we've known this from the beginning, but this is the moment where Jesus' disciples are beginning to figure out who he is. Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Um, two weeks ago, we heard a story about a woman who recognized Jesus, called him the son of David. It's another synonym. And, and all of those words mean you're the king. You're the king that God has sent into the world. To rule all of creation with the wisdom of God. To rule all creation with the power of God. To be the protector and the provider of the people of God. To usher in an era of everlasting peace and joy and flourishing and healing and hope and life and gladness and peace. He says, that's who you are. You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Three weeks ago, we heard a story about the disciples in a boat in the middle of a storm. And Jesus comes walking out to them on the water and he calms the storm and he gets in the boat. And they look at him and they say, truly, you are the son of God. Now, in the first century, son of God was another title for Messiah. They didn't mean Jesus was divine. They didn't understand that at first. But I think that's what Matthew wants us to hear. I think Matthew wants us to see Jesus as God with us in the midst of all the darkness and turmoil and chaos that our world is living through right now that swirls inside of us, that swirls around us. Jesus is God with us in the midst of the darkness with the power and authority to trample all over the forces of evil and to bring peace. Peter looks at Jesus and he says, I know exactly who you are. You are God's king. Come to live among us as the one who is going to rule all of creation and who's going to make the world the way God always wanted it to be, who's going to make the world the way the world would be if God were allowed to finally be in charge. Jesus replies in verse 17, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus says, Peter, that, Simon, Peter, that answer didn't come from you. It didn't come from your head. Flesh and blood, he says, has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood simply being everything about humanity. You didn't, you didn't get this from your humanity, from thinking, from reflecting, from observing, from being a detective and putting together the clues and piecing it together one by one. You didn't get it by the group of you all figuring it out in dialogue behind my back, backroom conversations where you're trying to piece together the mystery of who Jesus, you, you didn't figure this out on your own. God revealed that to you. 
fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, no one knows the Son, Jesus, except the Father, and anyone to whom the Father reveals him. The only way you can really know who Jesus is is if God reveals him to you. And, and many times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has said that it's for those who have eyes to see and those who have ears to hear and those who have a heart that is open to understand, those who are coming with an open heart of faith, they're the ones who are gonna see what no one else sees and they're gonna hear what no one else hears and they're gonna understand in their heart what no one else understands. They're gonna be the kind of people who are open to hearing from God, to having God open their eyes to seeing Jesus for who he really is. And maybe you're here this morning and you're just seeking out this Christianity thing. You're just exploring who Jesus is. You're trying to understand what a life of faith is all about. And for you, I would say, um, keep reading the Bible. Keep reading books about the Bible. Keep thinking and keep talking to people, talking life group, that's lots of questions. There is, there, that's all a, an amazing part of your journey. But if you wanna know who Jesus is, you have to come with a heart that is open in faith. That the posture of cross-armed skepticism, you're not gonna figure this out with your brain. You have to come with an open heart that is willing to look to God in faith and say, show me who Jesus really is. Because Jesus says that's the kind of person who gets to see him for who he is. And he says that kind of person who comes with eyes open, ears open, the heart open in faith for God to reveal who Jesus really is, that kind of person, he says, is blessed. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You're blessed. The word blessed in Greek is the word makarios. It means um, to be full, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied and content, to be happy with the way things are. There was an island, actually, well, there still is an island in Greece, as a part of Greece, called the island of Cyprus. And the, the secular writers in ancient Greece used to call the island of Cyprus the, the blessed isle, the Makarios island, because you, if you lived on Cyprus, you had absolutely everything you needed to live a completely full and fulfilled and utterly satisfied life. If you lived on the island of Cyprus, there was no reason why you would have to leave for anything. You weren't lacking anything. The island was filled with natural resources and plenty of beauty and flowers and fruit and food. And there was everything you needed right there on the island for you to live a complete, full, happy, satisfied life. You could be perfectly content. It's like Hawaii, basically. Right? If you lived in Hawaii, why would you ever leave Hawaii? There's no reason to leave Hawaii. It's like, it's perfect. It's amazing. I, I, my uh, brother's in-laws live in British Columbia. I remember when we were out there for my brother's wedding, and every morning, uh, my brother's father-in-law would walk out on the porch in his home in BC, which was right on the ocean, and he would look out over the Pacific, and he'd say, it's just another perfect day in paradise. That's makarios. That's this inner sense that you have everything that you need to be full and fulfilled in life, to be satisfied and content. You have everything that you need to be happy. Not that everything is perfect or everything works out uh, in the way that you hope, but you have everything you need to be happy. As the saying goes, if you have Jesus and nothing, then you have everything. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. 
because you had your eyes open and your ears open and your heart open in faith and you allowed in faith God to reveal to you who I really am and you have embraced that and confessed that in faith. You have submitted yourself to that. That is now the guiding orientation of your life and because it is, you have everything that you need to live the life that you always wanted to live. That's all. That is everything you need. And yet, there's more than that. He says, uh, in, in verse 18, he says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter, Jesus says to Simon that you are blessed and yet there's more. He says, I'm now changing your name. You were Simon and now you are Peter. And we've talked about this before if you've been around that in the ancient world, the name is more than just a label you slap on somebody so they'll turn your head when you yell that word out loud. The names that they gave to their children in the ancient world were names that were packed with meaning as a prayer placed on top of the child. I pray that you would become this kind of person. Right, so in the 17th century uh, in England and in North America, Christians would name their kids hope and faith and love and joy and chastity because they're saying, these are the kind of people I want you to become. It's like a prophetic prayer about who this child is going to be. And so when you change somebody's name, what you're saying is you are now no longer only this kind of person. There is now a whole new layer to who you are. You're now this kind of person. So Jesus says, you used to be Simon. Simon comes from the Hebrew word that means to listen. You were the one who listened. You listened to God. You listened to what God was saying about who I am. And as a result, you have become Peter, which means rock. You've become solid. You've become strong. You've become stable. You've become hard and fast and immovable. Your life has become strong and stable because of your confession of who I am. He says, you are now Peter. You are Petros. You are the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, as a, in English, we use the same word two times in the same sentence. In Greek, there's a word play. He says to Peter, you are Petros. You're a rock. You are a Petros is a rock that a human being can pick up in their hand and throw if they want to. This is a Petros. But he says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. It's a different kind of rock. Petra is a rock face. It's a cliff, a rock edifice. It's a rock outcropping. It is a rock boulder of the size that nobody can move. It is a, a mass of interconnected rock that is vast and imposing and strong and immovable. And Jesus says, you are Petros and on a Petra, I am going to build my church. It's interesting that Jesus says this at Caesarea Philippi. Because Caesarea Philippi, um, it was a very unique location for to have this conversation. Because on the one hand, Caesarea Philippi is a city of two kings. 
It was built in honor of Caesar Augustus, Caesarea, and it was built by Herod Philip, Philippi, King Caesar Augusta, King Herod Philip, the city of two kings. And it's in the city of two kings that Peter looks at Jesus and says, I know who you are. You're God's king. You're God come into the world as a king who is going to turn this world into the place that God always imagined it would be, the kind of the world the way it would be if God were allowed to be in charge. You've, been, you've come into the world to be God's king to make everything right again, which is always the promise of every king. Peter says, they're not the king, you're the king. But Caesarea Philippi had a very particular topography. In fact, I've got a, a map or I've got a, a picture of Caesarea Philippi uh, up on the screen. And... <clears throat> On the left-hand side, you have a, a photograph of Caesarea Philippi the way it is today. And you can see that Caesarea Philippi is a massive rock face. It's, this is where the town was built, on this huge rock edifice, this massive cliff. This is Caesarea Philippi. This is what Jesus was looking at as he's uttering the words, on this rock I will build my church. On the other side of the screen, on the right-hand side, you have an artist's rendition of what Caesarea Philippi would have looked like when Jesus was alive. You can see by the temples, the size of the temples that are built there, the size of the people. You can just see how massive to scale this rock face really is. And those temples, one is a temple uh, to Caesar Augustus. The middle one is a temple to Pan and the god Zeus, who was the chief god of the Greek pantheon. There's a little skating rink off to the side that is a shrine to five other gods in an open-air market. This was the place that people came to worship, this massive Petra that Jesus was staring at. And what he was saying is that you are Peter and you're the Petros. It is your confession in faith of me that makes you the kind of rock solid person that I can use built together with all the other Petroses who are going to confess who I am in faith and put their faith and trust in me. And I'm going to build all the Petroses together into a massive interconnected artifice of faith that I'm going to call the church. See, Jesus didn't come into the world just to save individual people from their sins, to forgive you and change you and give you a new life. He came to do that, but he isn't interested in building a random rock pile of individual Petroses. What Jesus is doing, what he came into the world to do, is to build the massive stone edifice of interconnected Petroses called the church to build a gigantic spiritual great wall of China called the church that spreads around the world and reaches back through human history, this vast, strong, unshakable, immovable force for good and for God in the world. And he says the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my Petra. The gates of hell... By the way, the text is the gates of Hades. The older texts say hell. The word is Hades, and Hades is the place where dead people go. Hades is the place of death. It's the home of demons, not because people are being tortured and punished for the bad stuff they did in their life, hell. It's, Hades is the place where dead people go. It's the haunt of demons because death is the weapon of evil. 
to destroy God's creation, to undo all of the good and all of the life that God wants to build in his creation. Death is what evil does in the world. And the Old Testament used to talk about the gates of Sheol or the gates of Hades, the gates of the grave, the gates of the place of the dead as a gigantic mouth that is yawning wide open looking to consume and to devour people's lives, to devour their spirit, to devour their body, to devour their relationships, death being inflicted on marriages, death inflicted on families and and on friendships, death inflicted on a person's identity and personhood, death inflicted on somebody's sense of meaning and vocation, death through war, death through famine, death through terror, death through poverty, death through racism and sexism and ageism and every other form of discrimination. It's death being unleashed in the world and this image in the Jewish scriptures is of death chasing people down until eventually it swallows them up at the gates of Hades. And Jesus says, this church that I'm building, this massive edifice of interconnected Petroses who have confessed their faith in me and have become this unshakable, immovable force in the world is going to be a force for life. The church is the place where the gates of Hades do not prevail. The church is the place where people find life in their spirit and they find life in their soul and they find life in their bodies and they find life in their relationships and they find life in their personhood and they find life in their vocation and life in their meaning. They find themselves to be truly and fully alive because the church is a place of life and not death. And he says, I'm gonna give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The keys are symbolic of power and authority. Jesus says, I am building, I'm the king, and I'm building a kingdom of hope and peace and life in the world, and you're gonna be the ones who build it. The church is gonna build it. You have the power and authority for God's kingdom to come through you on earth to be agents of life and love in the world. And he says, and what you bind will be bound by heaven, and what you loose will be loosed by heaven well what you bind in the gospel of Matthew is evil the enemy Jesus enemy is what gets bound in the gospel of Matthew evil gets bound you have the power and authority Jesus was saying as church to bind, can constrict, and confine, and restrain the power of evil in the world. You have the power to loose, to set free, to unleash the power of life, and hope, and love, and peace in the world. Jesus says that is what is at stake in recognizing who Jesus really is. That it's those who in faith Recognize that Jesus is God who has come among us to be the king and to uh, govern over all of creation and make the world right again. It is those who put their faith in acknowledging who Jesus really is, whose lives are being made rock solid and who are being joined together as church. 
this massive, unshakable, immovable force for life in the world, the place where life wins over death and life extends into the world. That's what it means to really catch a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And so the question is, the question is, who do you say Jesus is? We, we end the series Exactly where we began, with the question of Jesus. I want you to spend, I want you to open your spirit to the question. I want you to reflect over the last six weeks of this journey. I want you to take some minutes to begin to answer that question in your own spirit. The question that Jesus asks Peter. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is?